all you deadheads, you're out there. Deadheads 2.0. That's what I'm going to call us. Thanks for listening to I Speak Dead People. This is Sarah Bolstead. Happy you're here for I Speak Dead People's first Swapcast. Swapcast just means a bunch of podcasters get together and share this episode on all of their platforms. So this episode will just give you a little taste of who each of us are and what our shows have to offer. I will be back next month. It's already November. Holy, but I will be back next month with more episodes. I am getting out of town. Mama's getting out of here. My friend's getting married and I'm going to party. Party in a 30-something-year-old way. Be sure to look in the episode description. In this episode description, there will be links to Callie and Larkin's podcasts if you so wish to listen to more, which I hope you do. But yes, please enjoy this show. Enjoy the weekend. Enjoy your lives. Let's do it. Without further ado, we explain why we're all together. We just get right to it. This is Callie Rose Morris and Larkin Mattoon. everybody. I'm Sarah Bolstead and I'm the host of I Speak Dead People. It is a Missoula-based podcast where I have guests come on the show and we just talk about all the crazy things in death and when we lose loved ones. Usually the guests um, have lost a family member or a close friend and we talk about grief, um, sort of all the things that we don't get to talk about in a day-to-day basis, some of the things that society silences. And I Speak Dead People just normalizes the crazy and the, you know, the things that throw us off in life because we have lost someone that we loved. I'm Larkin Mattoon. I'm host of Death is Coming. It is a Q&A podcast that I host with uh, friends, acquaintances, strangers. We go from a starting point of talking about death and how to deal with it and are we prepared for it and it, the conversation will then branch out to all things uh, hallucinogenics, religion, music, movies, and we just kind of let the conversation go where it goes, and I just try to pick people's brains and find out what's good about life, because death is coming. And I'm Callie Morris, a host of A Rhythm Runs Through It, which is a performance and interview podcast that showcases people in and around Montana. Cool. So you might be wondering why two death podcasts are talking to myself, Callie, who hosts a music podcast. Well, I lost my father when I was 18, who was a well-known Montana musician, and music and death, in my eyes, have gone hand in hand for a very long time. So I'll be having a conversation with Sarah specifically about my dad, and then Sarah will pass the baton over to Larkin, who will talk with Sarah about her experience. So we're here to have like an intimate conversation about music and death, um, a common theme with Larkin and I, and music with Callie. Um, Callie, you know, when I think about your story and your motivation behind your podcast um like I mean I'll just say it it's just music um something it's a gift that you were given from your dad I mean he introduced it to you he was a musician you've become a musician and you study it as well or yeah my undergrad was in music 
Okay. Yeah. And then, so what are you currently studying right now? Uh, right now I'm doing my master of social work. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And like, before I give it away, um, what, what instrument did your dad play? What kind of musician was he? Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of people know this about me. My dad passed when I was 18 years old, two weeks before high school graduation, um, and just really influenced who I am today. He was a musician and played every instrument under the stars. He was a marimba. He was in a marimba band. He was in an Irish band. He was in a folk band. He taught music at Flathead Valley Community College. He taught guitar mostly and private guitar lessons. So really just played like we grew up with the music room with instruments everywhere. So yeah. Was he a type that like he'd a song would be on the radio and he'd pick up an instrument and he would just like start playing it. Yeah, yeah. totally. Totally. He would hear a car beep and start harmonizing with the car. And I'd be like, Oh dad, that's so embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, so embarrassing, but so cool too. And you look back on it. Like, yeah. Are you like that? Like, can you pick up an instrument and start playing right away? Like, something on the radio. I mean, don't have to be modest. Just tell me the <laughs> truth. <laughs> um, no, not really. Like, I, like singing, yeah. Like, I feel like I can harmonize pretty well, but um, I definitely like have to practice more than he did. I think with new instruments. Yeah. What's your go-to voice? Okay. Voice and piano. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Are were you like a kid who led a an all boys band and you're the girl in the front? Like, did you love Gwen Stefani growing up? I know I did. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I wish I actually did classical music growing up, which was completely different than both of my parents were more into like the folk scene and um, like traditional Irish jamming and that kind of oh, stuff. Wow. And I took the more structured route and did grew up doing classical stuff. And now I'm really trying to actually break away from, from that. So Oh, cool. And like, what was it like with your dad? Like, is that something you guys really bonded over? Like, could you communicate with him outside of music? Or was that just like, this like mutual thing you had? Like, you know, a relationship between dad and daughter can be kind of like, I don't know, how far do I? How easy is it to communicate with my dad? But you guys like had music. So that probably made it very easily easy. Yeah, yeah, we um were I mean he had a studio and as I got older I got more interested in like learning about that process um and like re the recording process and like um just like having him teach me things about music mm -hmm. but I really like I really othered myself from like from the music I feel like for like I had my musical projects and he had his musical projects but like looking back that's definitely one of my biggest regrets is like not picking his brain more about that stuff was he kind of a sure. hard ass was he like no that's not good Kelly. no he was the opposite really? like which was almost like t annoying and I've had this with a lot of mentors in life, you know, of them just being like, wow, that's so good. That's so amazing. When it's like, no, I sa I know that sounded bad. Like, don't don't like sugarcoat it, you know. And so, yeah, it was definitely like the opposite. He was like overly proud to a point where like I wanted negative feedback so I could grow. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So what was that like you 
you even have a recording of you guys when you're like two years old, two or three years old. You have a song that you did together. I mean, it started as early as like when you were a toddler. Yeah. Your first memory together. Um, do you remember those moments? Like, I know that's like pretty young, but I mean, as far back as you can remember, what's one of your first memories with your dad? I used to, so when he was in the marimba band, I used to sleep underneath. They had a giant marimba that, of course, when you were a kid, it felt like it was a skyscraper height tall. But in reality, I bet it was only like six feet. But they used to like set up a nest for me underneath. Like when they would have marimba band practice, they would like set up a nest underneath and sleeping underneath that was a one of the first memories that I had wow. for sure was... And I'm like so sorry. Okay, you keep saying marimba. What is a marimba? <laughs> it's I have, like a <laughs> I have a follow up to this question too. So that's not a dumb no, question. What, huh? what is a what is a marimba? No, I have a follow up to oh, the answer to okay. what is a marimba. Um, it's like a xylophone, which may or may not be helpful, uh-huh. but it, it it's traditionally rooted in African, like from African music. And it has different like wooden pallets that are different lengths and have different um, like pitch to them. So it starts off usually on the left. It'll be a shorter pallet and then gradually getting bigger and bigger, bigger, going to the right. And then the bigger pallets on the right side are going to be lower tones typically. Oh, wow. And it has mallets, right? Yeah. What percentage of instruments in a marimba band have to be marimbas for it to be a marimba band? That's actually a great question because a or big is it just the lead <laughs> instrument <laughs> yeah. makes it a marimba band. No, that's a that's a really good question. So they had a ton. I would say like at least five marimbas, but like one of the things that made their marimba band Tropical Montana Marimba Ensemble that's actually they're doing their last like show coming up, which is kind of sad. But one of the things that made them so unique was the fact that my dad would. Um, uh, compose songs for them and uh, like I know they had a trombone in one of the songs my dad was really awesome he was great at trumpet so there was like a trumpet in one of the songs and yeah yeah huh a marimba all right <laughs> I'm starting a marimba band sweet I'll join <laughs> they're giving away their marimbas yeah, yeah so <laughs> they're giving them away yeah <laughs> oh. oh so we can start <laughs> where did you grow up uh, the flathead. Okay. Yeah. That's right. So you're playing marimba at all the like white crazy people gatherings. Just yeah. Kidding. Yeah. That bad. Exactly. <laughs> what are what are white people crazy gatherings? What are they? I mean, can I say that? Oh yeah. Oh okay. Like the skinhead rallies. I mean, that's what's going on up in Kalispell. I mean, am I the only one talking about it or what? It has. I mean, yeah, it's been a real thing. Can I say there was? Are they mar- are skinheads marimba fans? <laughs> no, is this, is this no. Known? Actually, so there was when I was in high school at the library. There was this whole controversial thing where white supremacists were having their like meetings at the public library, and people were not stoked about it. And I actually remember with some of those same bandmates going to the public library and protesting the fact that there was white supremacists having. <laughs> having a meeting at the public library in the oh. flathead so but yeah it's it's a it, i don't know how what the climate is i haven't lived there for 10 years so i feel like i can't really speak to it now but that was definitely a thing growing up there yeah. for sure it's a part did you like were there kids in your school that you knew their dad was like i think i lived in a little like me? bubble 
Okay. You know, like I was in a very, uh, yeah, I lived That's in a That's a sweet bubble. bubble to be in, a non-skinhead bubble. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. 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 That's uh, Richard Spencer. I think he lives in Whitefish. He was the, the big loudmouth right around the time of Charlotte. Oh. The protests. Yeah, hmm. he, he was up there and he was causing a bunch of trouble with some local business people. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. Crazy. Crazy. But yeah, so you were like, I mean, it was never, well, I just say this because like my dad liked cars. So we would, he'd be like, let's go drive in my Triumph and we'll drive around town. I grew up in a small town. So, and I'd just be like, no, that's horrifying. I do not want to be seen with my dad in this car that's going to break down on the side of the road. Like, you know, cause that's not cool. But now I look back, I'm like, what an idiot. I should have been doing that with my dad. And, you know, so maybe you were playing like talent shows or something and like as a 14 year old girl you're like dying inside because you're playing next to your dad but oh and that was totally a thing for <laughs> sure like I, yeah and it's same thing like in hindsight hindsight's always 2020 I'm like oh, I wish that I would have like played more with him and collaborated more like thankfully in high school we started writing songs together so we have a few like a few Christmas songs actually but yeah like that was totally a thing for sure like I was like embarrassed that my dad was in a marimba band and like into irish music <laughs> i was like what? yeah you know and you talk about those moments like you know being 15 and thinking that and to think that he only died three years later like it was only su- it was such a short amount of time later you're only 18 years old when you get a call right is this how this happened yeah yeah you're yeah. 18 such a tough time to lose anybody and especially someone who has um, a huge influence over the things you do in your life the music and music and studying and I mean just your whole life and your dad is gone <laughs> I mean it happens unexpectedly unexpectedly um, but yeah like talk about that time moments you remember from that yeah definitely that's that's a really good question um, you know like a lot of that time I like totally blacked out like there's a solid like two or three months where like I don't remember at all um and like just recently my roommate actually had like brought up she was there like when the whole thing happened we've been close since like seventh grade and she like brought up the day that he died and was like like like, telling me about it and I was like I don't remember any of that Mm -hmm. like and now like with my msw a huge part of my focus has been doing trauma work just because that's ultimately what i needed to heal was doing a lot of different types of trauma therapies and um yeah like it's just amazing what our brains do like just totally black it out and being able to like hear that story from my roommate's perspective was also just really special because were you in the dorms or something when you say roommates or no, like my current roommate. Oh, yeah. yeah like my okay. current roommate. She was, yeah, she was there. So, yeah. 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 So what is it? You're 18 and you get a phone call or? Yeah. I was. So the story is actually kind of funny in hindsight. Like I was skipping school when it happened. And I I want to write a song about this someday too. And I remember like walking, like the, what I remember about it was walking and there's like leaves crunching on the ground, which is weird because it was May. But then I also remember like snow so there was a like a combination of seasons happening around me which is not the case you know like it was very clearly spring it was a day in may um 
And so that is like one of the things that's really just stuck with me of like, like the wet, the weather temperament. I couldn't figure out Mm -hmm. with when it happened, but so I was skipping school and, um, my mom actually called my roommate, which I, this was one of the things I just found out. My mom called my roommate and told my roommate what had happened because I wasn't answering because I was because we were skipping school and I was like crap my mom's calling like she's gonna know that I'm skipping school and um so she called and told Hannah and then um like I just went back to the school and was in denial like right away when it happened when she told me that my dad had passed I was like no it didn't like my dad's alive mm-hmm. no it didn't like and it took a really long time for that to just like set in but uh-huh. yeah what was he doing or um, how, I mean tell someone who knows nothing <laughs> yeah so he was biking up going to the sun the day before it happened and um just his blood sugar dropped and he yeah that's how he ultimately passed was yeah so just quick didn't know it didn't expect it you know you didn't know dad was gonna die as it's not like he had you when he was 65 years old and you were like, oh, he'll. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting. Like one of the things that was really comforting to me and I actually received a lot of pushback on was like people like it's comforting to me to know that like your parents are going to pass before you. You know, it's just a matter of when, mm-hmm. you know, and of course, that's not black and white. But I think I had a, a subconscious belief that like. I knew my parents were going to pass before me. So it sort of helped me to heal Mm -hmm. faster. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's true to some extent, but then also when it happens at such a young age too, you're, you know, you kind of roll through your twenties and you're like, why am I so screwed up? Oh, maybe it's because dad died a little too soon, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Just like stuff you can relate it back to or, you know, part of my inspiration for I speak dead people was just to like eliminate the shame and the guilt that we feel for not being able to grieve properly quote unquote but how you kind of go oh my god like looking back after eight years maybe I was doing that because I wasn't dealing with my dad's death in the most healthy way or you know I wasn't really like facing the situation the reality of the situation and like you said like trauma work and kind of like diving into that you go oh and it's not just unique to me. A lot of people go through stuff like this. And totally. You know, we all we all wear our trauma differently. Yeah. <laughs> it shows up a little bit differently in everybody. But um yeah, was there anything like like a pivotal moment where you're like, Okay, maybe there's something here. Maybe I need to work on something. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I had a, like a complete mental breakdown in twenty nineteen where I didn't sleep for five days. I like was pretty actively suicidal. Um, and it it stemmed down to the fact that I hadn't dealt with my dad's death. And so it was like seven years after, after he had passed. And so at the time that belief of, oh, my dad's going to die before me or whatever, parents die before us was helpful and adaptive, but you know, like seven, eight, nine years in hindsight, that thought was for sure maladaptive Uh you know and like preventing me from actually working through the trauma of what happened Mm -hmm. so yeah I know so um and you know back to music how because he gave you I called it a gift he really gave you a gift I mean this was something um 
you could use to cope in losing him as well. Um, you know, when I think it kind of changes, you have this like identity shift when someone dies, like your life before they died was just like so different, but <laughs> like for what it is now. And yeah, that comes with a lot of growth and evolution. It's just like in aging, but you can really look back and be like, wow, who was that person? And like, kind of appreciate the person you're becoming is that true in your music like did you see your your music evolve at all like pre and post your dad's death yeah yeah I used to have zero anxiety when performing like it it was just like throughout all throughout high school and like no stage fright yeah like no stage fright and then after my dad passed like I'm still working through stage fright and I feel like I kind of started back on square one where like most people that didn't grow up with a musical family start, you know, or something like that. I don't know. Like I just have immense amount of stage fright and anxiety now. And I think it's because I have a resistance to even like performing. And there's a lot of sadness that happens when I perform. Cause I'm like, Oh, I wish my dad was here. I wish that he could see all the things that I'm, you know, accomplishing and all the songs that I've wrote. And like my, my album is pretty much a lot of it is about, putting on a happy like the how our society puts on a happy face and doesn't like really like feel the feelings like there's a song copacetic thoughts that I have that's really just all about that idea of like putting on a facade um and not feeling the feelings and so I think that was roundabout way to answer that question but yeah yeah for sure like I think just the way that I perceive music has changed a ton what's what's the name of your album uh how, how do you find it it's on Bandcamp, Spotify, Apple Music, uh, wherever you stream. It's operating from the subconscious second by secondhand shenanigans. Oh, cool. Yeah. What are you doing to work on your uh, stage fright now? Because I sang the Titanic song, My Heart Will Go On, in front of my third grade class, and they all laughed at me, and I never got over it, and I can't sing in front of anyone <laughs> still. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. So... And I always love when people tell me stories like that because I shit you not, every single person has a story that stopped them from performing. Like, and it was a traumatic, it was a traumatic thing. Yeah. Like when people are like, oh, I wish I could sing. The first thing I ask is what music teacher told you you weren't good, Uh you know, or what, what class laughed at you to say like, hey, I'm not able to continue on in this, in this path path that I love yeah. or yeah. that I like exactly. um yeah uh a lot of m- just like being mindful of my thoughts and my self-talk um and just reminding myself like that's not true you know like if I hear myself saying oh that sounded like crap just being like you know what it didn't sound that bad it could have sound better but it didn't sound bad so a lot of just changing my own automatic thoughts yeah um, I feel like and, mindfulness is like the answer to like most things now yeah <laughs> like being mindful like <laughs> yeah definitely and changing those too you know I think and like allowing yourself giving yourself permission to change those and um breathing like belly breathing before shows has really helped me I sometimes will like put my palms like my left palm on top of my right palm and just put them down by my belly button and breathe into that, like breathe into a ball in front of my stomach, in front of my belly button. And that helps. Now, every time I perform, you guys are going to look and see if I'm doing that. That means I'm nervous. 
Hey, that's all right. But <laughs> at least you're not like hammering shots or something and then just, you know. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> hey, it. It's not the worst thing, but, you know. I, I used to get so drunk. <clears throat> I used to get so drunk before shows. Like, I just drink as many cocktails as I could just to tamp down that energy level that was just it's like it's it's an anxiety but it's just like a high level of freak like vibrating basically yeah. so when i quit drinking doing shows since then has just been like nerve-wracking because i'm i just pace and i run around and i can't i don't know where to put any of that energy until it's over it's really difficult um, totally i've to, been known to, to do belly breathing i've been known to do push-ups before shows for sure yeah <laughs> yeah seriously it's also good like i don't drink anymore either and like when i uh like I did a show at the Sean at Sean Kelly's like a long time ago and I just got like hammered before we got on stage and like one of the critiques from the judges was like girl seems drunk <laughs> like, <laughs> like oh god you know so it's like now it's like oh why am I pacing back and forth oh probably because I don't drink anymore and, yeah uh, can't uh, take the edge off yeah but you gotta yeah. find new ways belly breathing so what are your future goals in mental health and music yeah and the music profession yeah yeah so I helped to co-found Montana Area Music Association a few years back and um, the hope is that I will open a private practice in collaboration with Montana Area Music Association and have a building where a few therapists will be in the building then uh, Montana Area Music Association, their office will be in the building and we can have small, intimate concerts and um, hopefully group therapy that is directed towards musicians, but also um, just the general population. I have a really strong connection to the criminal justice system, so I'll probably continue working with that population as well. But what does um, music directed group therapy look like? Like, can you explain that to someone who, you know, when I imagine it, I think of just like playing a song <laughs> and everyone's like sitting together and you just work through something like just explain it to me. Sure. Yeah. So I think for me, a big part of, you know, like people always ask like, oh, do you want to do music therapy? And in a traditional sense, no, I don't want to. I really want to work with musicians to work through things like stage fright and things like em finding empowering ways to mitigate negative self-talk before going on stage. And especially in a group environment, just talking about, you know, depression and anxiety and the reasons that oftentimes make musicians who they are um, or like play a role in, 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 who they are and who they are as a musician. So, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's cool. I wasn't like thinking of it directed to the musician as much as I was using music as the therapy. Yeah. Like, if that makes sense. So that's cool that I didn't realize how many musicians probably struggle with that. Like I'm not so far off for never wanting to sing in front of anyone again. Totally. <laughs> because of something that happened to me when I was nine. Yeah. I mean the 27 club is, a thing mm -hmm. for a reason and like I've done a lot of different studies on mu musicians and depression specifically but I mean really a lot of it I I I feel and this is my bias stem from trauma too mm -hmm. um and it's really just been kind of eye-opening to like a lot of the musicians I know just having conversations about their trauma past and trauma history just um 
yeah, I'm shocked. So I, I do feel like there's a market for having those groups and yeah. That's cool. That is cool. All right. Well, thanks for sharing your story, Kelly. I know it's like kind of hard to just be put on the spot and all of a sudden I just like start drilling you with questions that not everybody gets to ask you every day. So thank you. Thank you for giving people a voice and oh. a space to talk about oh. their experiences. Well, um, Larkin, well, music plays a huge role and you, you are a musician too, correct? Yeah. 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 Okay. Sort of. So I, I, you make, are. I, I make, I make, yeah. Yes. What kind of, what kind of music? <laughs> Hip hop predominantly. Okay. Yeah. I'm a writer. Uh, I do make, uh, I make beats, but I, I try to rely on other people for that if I can help it. But sometimes they're not available. So I have to make my own oh. and I try to bring in as many, what I call real musicians as possible, uh, to collaborate with. Cause that's really fun. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. That is, it's such a, it is, it's such an art not to be all dorky, but I mean, just to like, do you do a lot of uh, improv and like that kind of hip hop or what? No, more of I'm a I'm a writer. I mean, okay. I, I that's definitely a, a style of the music that is that is trainable and and something that you can a muscle you can exercise. And I did when I was younger, but at some point it became kind of wasted breath for me. I I wasn't saying what I wanted to say that way. And some people can. I mean, I, I work with people who can just. I mean, you wouldn't you'd be surprised that they hadn't written it because it's, it can be so profound, but I'm not one of those people. It's just dumb <laughs> when I try it. So I really try to, uh, get what I, what I want to say out in, in the writing. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And your podcast too. Uh, it's cool when I heard, Hey, I know someone who's doing a death podcast too. I was like, well, what the heck is he stealing my, my concept or what's going on here? But when I, I met you and like figured out what you were, uh, you know, what your inspiration was behind it. I think it's super fun because, you know, not only do my friends and I kind of sit around and ask each other, like, what would be your last meal? Like, what's your Mount Rushmore of, <laughs> you know, music you have to listen to before you die or, you know, whatever. It's like, I think it's a really cool thing because it makes you kind of face the reality of like who you are and like what legacy you want to be left behind. Maybe. I don't know. Might be kind of a big way to say it, but <laughs> yeah, it's, I, my definition for what, what it is always changes and why it started. I mean, there was, there, it came from all kinds of sources and it just culminated into one thing. And then even that thing is not what it became. It started a certain way and then it has turned into something else. But a lot of the motivation, uh, came from me just wanting to talk to other people about how death has played a part in their life. And, questions that I had about death that I didn't have answers for. And I thought maybe the people around me would, and that has turned into more, what are things that I don't know about life that are good that other people around me might be able to offer some insight towards. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's so cool. Cause like for me, it was just so therapeutic to hear other bereaved guests talk about the crazy things they've been through when they lost a love a loved one like something I could really re relate to you know so like that part of my show was therapeutic but what I'm realizing like a big picture thing that is like death is beyond our control and like it's going to happen like why do we celebrate life so much but we hardly talk about death like our culture is just like no let's just like not face that right <laughs> so do you have any um like have you seen yourself I don't know maybe this is the wrong way to put it but just like how do you see your podcast changing the narrative of death 
when you say narrative, do you mean people avoid talking about it? Yeah. I don't know that it will. <laughs> I have kind of come to, a, you know, in, in the Western society that we live in, death and sex are two things that you just don't really talk about unless you have to. And even sex is like less of a conversation mm -hmm. that people have. And our kind of prudish sensibilities don't allow for those to be talked about in any, every space. You have to be like in a mortuary or a whorehouse, you know, to openly talk about these things that everybody does and everybody experiences. So I kind of realized talking to people that you can't, it's hard to just talk about one thing and not have other things come up. So I wouldn't try to quash those other things. And the more I did that, the more I realized that, you know, if I'm going to talk to all these people, I want to know, you know, we do have a lot of life, hopefully to live before we die. What are things worth living for? What are things that are good? And we talk about, you know, are you prepared for death? And do you have a will? Are you an organ donor? Things like that. And that's, that's all well and good. But that conversation is almost less interesting. That's more of a fundamental question than a question about well, I'll, I'll ask you something. So, um, well, do you have a will? No. Yeah, I mean, it's stupid because it's like I should or, you know, like I have names on accounts where I'm like, make sure this goes to so-and-so. But, I mean, I don't have anything in writing. Nothing in writing. Yeah. What, what about a last will and testament? No. Oh, sorry, a living will. No. So what do you want to happen to your body when you die? Oh, well, I have told my husband to make sure I'm cremated. Just, yeah, just make sure. <laughs> and, and, like, he knows that, and I say it, and I joke around about it a lot. But, um, yeah, and I just feel like my family would be like, there's no way in hell we're going to bury her. Like, you know, what? like, I just know how they believe. So, I, whatever. And one of the things that I, I've found is that, you know, the podcast serves a sort of two purposes, Rather than changing a narrative, I think I ask questions that people don't vocalize that often. Because we all think about death. And I've had the conversation of what I want to happen with my remains dozens of times with dozens of people. But I've never actually vocalized with a person that matters and can put it on record. Uh -huh. it, was kind of, it, was, it was meant to be like a living sort of document where I could be like, I'm going to say on this podcast, this is what I want. Mm -hmm. If I go fix that later, that's up to me. But at least we can point to that yeah. and say... She said it, or he said it, yeah. it's right here. Um, and then the other part of that is that it came from the podcast is just things that, like I said, things that you enjoy in life that we can share with other people. So uh, one question that I'm, I'm particularly fond of is um, what is something that everyone should try but may not know the benefits of? So everybody knows that you know some people like chocolate. So that's an easy answer. But what's something that you've discovered that you think is almost like a secret that other people could benefit from? Oh, yeah. That, I mean, I know. You could say, like, stop drinking for a month. Stop doing so-and-so. Like, simple. But, like, like, I think not having money. Like, try not having money for, like, a year. Or, you know, living off of... 20 bucks for a week like you get a house you get a bed you know you get you get like a place to live and you get like the the necessities but like have you ever been so broke <laughs> that like you really saw what it was like to just like 
<laughs> struggle for a little while and like what lessons did you learn from that that you still carry to this day less broke <laughs> you know like I have a deep appreciation for people who have struggled and for the people who have just kind of like had an easy sailing type life you just like well maybe they see you know they don't see life like the rest of us you know so I I mean I guess I would say to that is be broke for a little while <laughs> what's a lesson you learned when you were broke oh god um what's your biggest takeaway I think I think just like realizing that it doesn't last forever like this sucks and but I'm like having a human experience and I can do as much as like shit talking as I want and like complaining and wishing that somebody would help me out of it but like the only person that will get me out of it is me so you know self-reliance yeah self-reliance is probably the you know the short answer the good answer <laughs> uh I feel that so much that answer to that question yeah the, I uh, yes yeah I mean I I hold a huge resentment for people that have had shit handed to them and I do it subconsciously and it's made me lose friends. Like, yeah. yeah. Do you think that resent resentment's earned though? I mean, they don't know the difference. There's people who are poorer than me who would think that I've been handed things. Totally. And it's yeah. a, it's I've a, had a pretty easy yeah, life. I, well, I mean, me too. like I'm not saying I yeah. was just like, you know, on the streets or something, but I think it's but. like a negative bias I have towards people and like has really affected relationships. Like, like I have, you know, and then to have that flipped around after my dad passed and mm -hmm. I was the one that had money too. like mm -hmm. I had some guilt because I had judged people so much for having money mm -hmm. because growing up with nothing or like growing up broke, you know, and yeah. I, I do think it shapes your character. I, like if no, you grow up and I you have a that. and you have a butler, like I don't think I don't fault you for. No. like your life is your life with a, that's just your life with a butler like yeah. it's that's totally fine it's i think and we also applaud people who had a butler but also end up being decent people who volunteer or donate or whatever but it's like that's their experience is exactly like how would they know any different you know unless they've had some sort of like um reversal of fortune that took them out of that but i mean i don't i don't know my experience is i don't know any different in my life Hopefully, I, you you just turn out okay and not a horrible person, no matter how much money you have. Totally, yeah, yeah, and I think that was a big part of growing up is like realizing that values and placing values on people just because of certain things can get you into trouble or keep you, or make friends, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like the natural thing that we all the comparative culture that we have, where we're just like you know someone saying i'm having a really hard time and naturally i think we're like oh how hard is it like is it like you know and so you can kind of relate it back to i don't know like when someone's talking to me and i know that they've been handed a lot of things and they're complaining i'm like girl you don't even know what it's like to freaking wake up at 5 a.m and you know whatever and, and that's and, and that solves zero problems <laughs> or that's all like if, if i tell someone i have a headache and they're like well i have a migraine like my headache doesn't go away like it's still we now we are both just complaining to each other and yeah. nobody's happy that's, like that's true but that's another thing like my podcast too is i mean it brings in ty all types of people where you're just like oh you know where you almost 
at face value are like, oh, how hard could it be? And then you hear their story and you're like, wow, like everybody has a story. You know, it doesn't matter uh, what socioeconomic class you were raised in or born into or whatever. Like if you struggle, you struggle. Like and if you hurt, you hurt. You know, it's the same. Um, I just think there are lessons that you will learn if you, you know, are have less than others. I guess. Whatever. Is that the wrong answer? <laughs> so, Sarah, since you don't have a will on my podcast, I like to ask people as sort of like an audio record, what is something, what's a prized possession of yours that you would give to somebody else? Is there something you want to make sure one of your loved ones gets mm. when you when you die? Can I say my husband? I mean, don't let him be alone for very long, okay? <laughs> like, he asked me, like, I never let him help me cook because I'm like, everybody does it wrong. I'm the only one that can cook. Get out of here. And, like, he was finally, I, he was cutting the baguette, and he was like, how how thick should I cut it? And I'm like, really? You're really asking me that right now? You know? So he's just going to need a, a lady in his life. Sarah, <laughs> Sarah, you have to meet my wife. <laughs> You are peas in a pod, and I and I should apparently I should meet your husband because I do the same thing. Like, I'm, oh, is this diced enough? And she's like, I don't know. No, no, yeah. do it more. But it's like as if it's your fault for not knowing like how thick to dice bread when really it's because we don't let you do anything. It's really on us. I'm gonna call her right after this. It's like Sarah said that what I've been telling you is correct. But it's your fault, not mine. I also have a toddler. Like, I have a two-year-old son, so the thought of, like, him being without me is sad, you know? And that's where I'm like, yeah, just a, a nice girl in the picture would be, real, like, just a really nice lady for my husband would be great, you know? And then just hurry up and mother my child and be a good mom. Don't be a piece of shit, okay? Like, I'm also a stepmom, and, like, I know that there's good people out there that can help raise children you know like i just don't get the whole evil stepmom thing or you know that's part of like thanks to disney movies and stuff we get a bad rap because of that but like just be a good person and just these are kids you know and now that i have a kid i'm like oh, god the thought of the thought of that is sad or scary or whatever but my yeah uh, but for objects for things I don't know I have journals since I was like 12 which are super embarrassing so if anybody if anybody reads those don't judge me too hard but what do I care do you want your ashes spread anywhere mm. I don't think there's any like yeah that's the thing is like I have this like when I'm gone I'm gone you know I want to make sure that yeah, like I said, my son is taking care of my husband's taking care of my stepgirls. But for me, it's like I've I believe like I'm probably well, I'm either just dead, like and gone and I no longer exist, or else I'm like in a better place and I have like nothing else to worry about. You know? I have nothing else to worry about. I'm gone. I'm literally gone. But um no. I know, isn't that sad? Like, I don't even care where you would take my ashes. Like, I, I wouldn't care if you just, like, threw them up in the wind and they just, like, blew all over your face, you know? Like, I've, I've anything, had that'd a, be great. <laughs> I've had a few people who were just like, just throw them outside. Just throw them in the trash. Mm -hmm. Like, just throw them in an alley. Someone said they wanted to be buried in a, a velvet-lined hole in the dirt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, they don't yeah. care. They're like, I'm dead. So just, yeah. just throw me away. 
and there's something like very beautiful about that because I think it makes you feel very close to the person like when they do treasure those moments and those last pieces of you but it's also kind of an element that's like romanticized you know it's like well I have to like cherish these ashes and you know it's like no it's just some ash you don't even know if that's really your freaking dead person right there you know it could just be a bunch of garbage they just piled up in a box for you for you know but. well and technically it's not even if it is you that's burnt it's th that ash is not it's not even your dna mm -hmm. it's just ash yeah no it's the same as a fireplace well and that's what i like that's why i'm like i want to be cremated because i don't want my body just there for anyone to just be like you know like i'm not in there anymore i don't want my body and any you know left preserved for anybody i want to be gone like I am, you know, like not taking up space. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Aside from when you were broke and the, uh, the things you learned from that, what's something else that you've learned? Like what's something that you find to be true in life? Yeah. Um, Kat, I know as cliche as it sounds, but I remind myself of it like every day is that everything's going to be okay. <laughs> like, it, it really is going to be okay. And I take this lesson from, like, I've been learning the stock market for the last year. I've just had an absolute obsession with it. And I always have, like, I live off of if-then statements. Like, you know, when I worked really hard in the hospital setting, I'd be like, well, if I just got to stay home and not work in the hospital anymore, then I would be happy. Well, now I work at home and it's still not enough. Like, you know, it's just never enough for me. And um, so like learning the stock market, it's a journey. It's hard. Like not everybody survives the stock market. The market does not give a shit about you. And so it's like I'm finally doing it and learning it and becoming consistently profitable from it. But I still am like, but I don't make enough. And once I make enough, then I'll be happy. And it's like quit it like this is this is what you're doing this is life happening right now like don't look back at these times when you're home with your son and all you were just doing was like trying to get better and like grind harder and harder when and you were just like missing out on everything right in front of you and so that's what I'm like everything's going to be okay like when you lose money that day it's fine like you I practice risk management like I relate everything back to real life that I do in the stock in stocks and it's like everything's going to be okay I have self-control and like the journey of learning is happening right now like happiness is not a destination it's like just happening so I don't know that's what I always just remind myself everything's going to be okay and like learning and evolving is part of the is part of life what's something that you could, what's, what's, what's some advice you could give on someone that wants to start getting in the stock market? What's a pitfall that someone could avoid that, that you've, that you've fell into or a pit, I should say. Uh, yeah. What's, um, well, God, that's a loaded question because like the thing that mesmerizes me so much about it is, um, is the market is so fascinating because it, has like a mind of its own like it has retail traders and it has you know it has 
everything, like unimaginable amounts of people and money and institutions that are part of the market. But, um, but you have to respect it and you can't just like put, you can't just think of it as money. You know, you have to think of it as like a real living thing. Like it is, I mean, that's what it is. Like some days it's just not, it's not happening. Something, you know, it's just like, it's like, it's almost like a conversation when you can like really feel a conversation that's really going well and nothing's being forced. It's the same way with the market. Like when I'm forcing trades, none of them turn out well, <laughs> you know? And it's like, don't force things that aren't there. And that's like a lesson in life and a lesson in the market. But I would just say to respect it, like for anyone who has interest in it, it's just like, fully respect it because it does not care about you but it's also bigger than what you think it is sarah do you have any last words for us oh god i i mean you might have to put a stop to me um no i i don't i think what you're doing is great like i think it really does make you kind of face this stuff and like as much as i can give you some weird answers about the market and death and stuff it's like find little lessons in life you know like they're all there they are there contrary to like stupid memes and you know funny inspirational quotes we constantly read or that are like wallpapered on your freaking ants wall like live laugh love like but there are lessons to be had in everything like I my biggest losses in the market are some of the, like the biggest lessons I've ever learned, you know, because if, if everything was just like smooth sailing, what would we learn? You know, what, how would we grow? And that's like what life is all about is just like growth and evolution. So there you go. That seems like a great way to end it. Um, this was a conversation with Sarah Bolstad of I Speak Dead People, Callie Rose Morris from A Rhythm Runs Through It, and myself from Death Is Coming. On behalf of all of us, to all of you, thank you for listening. Thank you. That was fun. I Speak Dead People is hosted and produced by Sarah Bolstead, music by Clark Mormon, and art by Jacob Allen Dix. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. She's at it.